The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... My single greatest concern is that we still don't have the rates story correct and that people are still betting that the Fed doesn't really mean it. John Authors takes a random walk with me through some concerns for the market in 2023. And later we chat Twitter's future with Bloomberg Opinion's Tim Culpin in Taipei. A lot of people keep saying that they have left Twitter or will be leaving Twitter and they're going to places like Post and Mastodon and even Coup and a few other places. But yet those same people who say they're leaving Twitter are still staying on Twitter. First though... She's back. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren finally got to visit home, that's Shanghai, after three years of COVID-0 lockdown. She describes her experience, which coincided with China's pivot away from COVID-0. Also, how investors should be considering China's new determination to support economic growth. So, Shuli, you went back to mainland China for the first time in more than three years, and you're just now back in Hong Kong. It was a huge pivot that China did from zero COVID to what looked like, you know, let it rip through the economy. Is that what happened? Absolutely. So I went back to my hometown, Shanghai, in late November. When I came out of quarantine, China just retooled its COVID policy. So everything changed. Before, people had to do like a daily PCR test to be able to access public venues. All of that got removed health apps, so on and so forth. So the first week was very nice. It was liberating, right? Like China had the three years of COVID zero policy and the restaurants were full, trendy bars were full. But after that, the second week after the reopening, the street started to sing out all of a sudden. And uh, my own parents, my dad was uh, tested positive uh, with a rapid test eight days after the reopening policy change. So basically within two weeks, pretty much, 70 to 80 percent of Shanghai probably got infected by uh, COVID based on online surveys and my personal observations of family and friends. So we are hearing now some horrific stories, perhaps not like it was in New York in the very early days of the pandemic. But we are hearing about full crematoriums and about people not being able to pay for funerals. And we don't quite know what's going on in China. Can you give us a better sense I mean, I, I was fairly lucky. My parents well recovered, but their friends, both my parents are 76 years old. So, so they didn't know a lot of old people, right? So they were sharing stories, uh, friends and friends who passed away, whose body couldn't be picked up. Like one story my uncle heard was that a friend's elder sister, she, she was in her 90s. Her body was kept at home for eight days. They had to keep her in the bathroom. So these stories are true. Like they are anecdotal, but they are true. And and truth is, just China doesn't have this kind of a capacity because they let it rip too fast. Basically, within three weeks, 80% of Shanghai were infected. So, of course, uh, uh, you know, there, there will be casualties. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was quite difficult for a lot of families. Now, we talked about this on the program many times last year about how there was a lot more talk about zero COVID than there was about, say, vaccine policy or about, for example, getting more capacity hospital-wise into the system. 
it seems like at a certain point the leadership decided, well, there are now demonstrations, this is getting dangerous to us, or even more dangerous to the economy. We're going to open, and we don't really have anything else to offer. We, we didn't up the capacity of hospitals. We vaccinated everybody we could, but we didn't force vaccinations. Is that a correct interpretation? I think so. I mean, the, the leadership is pretty savvy. They understand that uh, if they continue on with COVID zero, it will be politically dangerous, right? Like, uh, basically a week before the reopening shift, like, there were protests uh, across China. Mm. So, they, so they knew that, uh, you know, that was inevitable. And I think they're pretty savvy. They know that, uh, at least on the ground, I, I can sense that uh, people this time, they feel resigned. They, they feel like uh, COVID is going to come to them sooner or later. But they don't feel this kind of anger that they had uh, during the, say, the two-month uh, lockdown in Shanghai or, or all the daily PCR tests. I think people are so sick of COVID-0, they'd rather be sick at this point. So so that's why Beijing was like, okay, we're just going to let it rip because if we keep COVID-0, these people are going to revolt and then their ruling will become more uncertain. Now, there are other ancillary problems to the actual disease itself and contracting the disease that other countries, including the United States, have had to deal with, including things like absence from work, return to work, long COVID. Are Chinese people talking about any of these things? It's so funny. China is letting it rip uh, so fast that the government says that, oh, you can actually return to work before you even turn negative. Well, right now, like a rapid test are scarce commodities anyhow. So basically, they're encouraging people to, to come back to work, even if they're positive, as long as the fever is gone. Um, I think that China, the Chinese government's priority has shifted completely to economic growth. Mm. So they, they actually want people to come back to work at ASAP. And surely, is there work for them to go back to now? How did the pandemic affect jobs? We know that youth unemployment was at 20% at one point. It's too early to say. I think China is still going through this massive wave of infections. But uh, certain jobs are quite that are, are quite available. For instance, uh, food delivery, right? Like the Chinese people are doing a lot of online delivery and e-commerce. And uh, I do see that part of the economy coming back, the, the consumer tech part. Well, that's really fascinating because... As much as we know that Chinese people like to save, they also haven't really been earning perhaps as much as they would have because of the pandemic. Do they have cash to spend online? It's interesting. I think China is going to be a very, it's becoming very segmented. It's predicting whether the Chinese economy can rebound very quickly. It's going to be as controversial as predicting whether the U.S. is going to a recession this year. On the one hand, a lot of people have no jobs. They are struggling because of COVID-0. On the other hand, I saw firsthand that people, perhaps middle or upper middle class, have a lot of spending power. For instance, on Christmas Eve, I saw two dozen young people lining up in front of a Chanel store. I think they just want to buy last minute gifts. And that was when, you know, Shanghai had a huge outbreak. And there was a peak of the outbreak. So I think there is money to be spent. And I have friends who are buying brand new SOVs because they think, oh, you know, 2023, they can do road trips again. So there are pockets of the economy where you can find very strong demand and perhaps jobs. It's so fascinating. Will she have to enact fiscal stimulus like we talked about last year in order to get the economy back on track, particularly the property sector? Obviously, consumer tech seems to be okay, but maybe there's a need there as well. And does he have the capacity to do so, Julie? 
there is going to be less capacity than the previous years because of the COVID zero. The Chinese government has spent a lot of money on COVID zero. But this year's talk is that the government will have to put on a little bit more debt. And right now, fiscal stimulus makes more sense, right? Because the biggest hurdles are kind of past us. And if you stimulate the economy right now, perhaps China can go into the early stage of a business cycle quite quickly. So I think there is talk. And also regarding the real estate sector, the government is going to announce even more stimulus measures based on my sources very soon. Even more for the property sector in particular? Yes. yes. Interesting. Shuli, we've talked about this on the programme before as well, but I'm curious as to your thoughts now that you've been back to the mainland. How will the people perceive that the government fared? So are people happier now with the government that the government did pivot away from COVID zero? I think people are happier with life in general. They just had enough of COVID zero. But in terms of the government's credibility, it took a huge hit. I mean, Omicron has been around for one year, right? For 11 months, and this is not just me talking, it's people online talking. For 11 months, people were doing forced to do daily PCR tests. There was staff neighborhoods and lockdowns. And then for the 12th month, December of the year, everybody ended up with COVID anyhow. And there was no basic medicine, not even Tylenol, in shock. So they felt that, the, you know, the, the government lost a lot of credibility. And then the so-called medical experts, they were talking about COVID being a very, very deadly disease to COVID is not, uh, being nothing more than a flu. And the uh, people just started to mistrust the government more after this whole fiasco. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And Shuli, how did the vaccines end up faring? Because she didn't want other types of vaccines, wouldn't allow the mRNA vaccines. It's interesting. When I was in Shanghai, I noticed before even the reopening, I noticed that vaccine pass is just not a big deal in China. They focus more on PCR testing results than whether you have been vaccinated or not. And then I, I start to notice a lot of elderly, they, they just refuse to be vaccinated. It, I guess right after the opening, there was some progress, but it kind of dropped the ball again. And the truth of the matter is most people have been infected. So the relevance of vaccines becomes not so much a big deal at this point. Surely, is there a danger that more rural areas and other parts of China than the you know major cities haven't seen the wave of COVID infections yet, will see it, and then will suddenly slow the whole economy down as well? I think, you know, it has to be very, very rural areas. Even smaller cities, second, third tier cities around the East Coast, based on my sourcing, these cities, they probably have herd immunity already. I mean, this spread is very, very fast. I think China would have gotten over this before Chinese New Year. Which is coming up in, what, three weeks? So, Shuli, what tends to happen around the Chinese New Year with Chinese markets? And will it be different this year because of COVID? Uh, It's a very good question. I think this year it will all depend on how fast China can get past COVID and whether people see economic rebound. So people are going to look at travel data, you know, consumption data, ways to see if there is consumption demand, consumer confidence. If that's good, then the market can be bothered quite a bit. Bloomberg Opinions, Shuli Ren. Stay tuned. John Arthur's next on some of the market's main concerns for 2023. This is Bloomberg Opinion. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. The risk of uh, anchoring of inflation expectations is still there. So I do think, you know, you saw again today, which we've been seeing really for the past maybe month or two, a little more recognition of those lags, mm-hmm. uh, that there are two-sided risks now. But nonetheless, you know, I think the message you got here today is mm-hmm. more hikes are coming. Some thoughts there following the publication this week of the latest FOMC minutes. Of course, the Fed is one of the market's concerns early this new year. Bloomberg Opinion's John Arthur has joined me to talk concerns overall for U.S. investors as we kick off 2023. So, John, 2023, yeah. your main concerns for U.S. markets, U.S. investors, let's put it that way. My single greatest concern is that uh, we still don't have the rates story correct uh, and that people are still betting that the Fed doesn't really mean it. They might be right, but on balance probabilities, I don't think they are. And the fact that they are still prepared to make quite such a confident bet that the Fed will be cutting by the end of this year worries me. It, it means that there are no, there are more banana skins potentially ahead of us. And that's why the Fed had to come out and basically shove it in investors' faces again with the FOMC minutes, which, bear in mind, were December's meeting, not January's meeting. Yes, which is exactly what they did 12 months ago, coming up with rather clearer declaration of hawkish intent in the minutes than had been obvious when the meeting itself happened. And it doesn't seem to have had an effect. Will the Fed have to come out now again and say it again? Uh, my suspicion is that they will, that that we're likely to get some fairly aggressive, hawkish Fed speak for the next couple of weeks uh, leading up to the next meeting because they cannot be happy that the market is positioned as it currently is. Um, they need financial conditions to tighten to help them deal with inflation. That's central to how they think they're going to overcome inflation. Uh, and while markets are confidently betting that the Fed is actually you know, a dove in wolf's clothing, that's not going to help. That counteracts what the Fed is trying to do. Now, we're talking rates markets here, right? Because Primarily, yeah. Yeah, equity markets are really not doing all that much of anything, at least US equity markets. We can talk about China in yeah. a moment. Yes, I think that's true. Certainly you had a massive re-rating last year. You know, multiples came down very significantly, um, but earnings expectations still managed to advance a little. Uh, I'm inclined to be, because I have a bearish tendency, which I really mm. need to do something about, mm. to think that, that that stocks are still somewhat on the overvalued side. But, uh, you know, even an inveterate bear has to say that the obvious overpricing of, of 12 months ago has been dealt with. Um, we're much closer to some sort of sensible long-term trend for share prices now. The concern is that normally on the eve of a recession, which if rates are going to come down, we have to have, normally on the eve of a recession, stocks start falling a lot further. You start predicting that earnings will 
full. Um, so that is that is the contradiction that bothers me at the at the heart of the the stock and bond markets at the moment. But it's kind of fascinating, though, right? Because before the holidays, there did seem to be a lot of pessimism. Yes, uh, I, I mean there there is a sense, and this does get very very confusing that pessimism is good for the bond market and not that bad for the stock market in that a an economic slowdown particularly if it isn't too bad that causes rates to come down might well be pretty good for financial assets um and i suppose that that does make some sense and a lot of the risks that are out there are risks that we've really become accustomed to in the last yeah, we know about Xi Jinping, we know about Putin, we're not terribly happy about it, but I think people feel, rightly or wrongly, that they've got their arms around what those risks are. Consequences, at least for financial markets. Yeah. We did see downside surprises in things like new orders and prices paid this week yes. as well. Is that providing any solace? Again, if you want inflation to come down and your bet is that we're having a recession quicker than the Fed thinks, and so the Fed is wrong about predicting such an aggressive policy for this year. If you're of that persuasion, then yes, certainly the ISM price is paid, which dropped below 40, mm. where 50 is the dividing line between recession and contraction. That's really a really good data point if you're of that persuasion. Um, but again, in terms of where the stock market goes... Apart from during the very strange conditions of the decade after the crisis, whenever prices paid drops that low, there is a recession mm. shortly thereafter. Uh, I, I think the other thing that has really encouraged people in the last couple of days, and I certainly can't deny that it's a reason for encouragement, is that a lot of European inflation numbers have come in far better than expected. Yes, very high. And we did see rallies in Europe, yeah. Yes, uh, but very high inflation numbers, obviously, but uh, you know, sharply lower than the month before and sharply lower than expectation. Well, and that brings up another point. Oil prices have also dropped pretty substantially. Yes, which, if that's warning us about declining demand, ain't great. Yeah. But it certainly, again, does give some strength to the people who are betting against the Fed. The only problem here, though, Bonnie is jolts the uh, the vacancy rate continues to be obdurately stunningly high <laughs> suggesting there's a very tight labor market and that and that is the big thing that the fed is very worried about mm. there is something very strange about the way the the labor market is clearing at present and the data on that front have been an unpleasant surprise even though yes you're Yep. There have been some significant pleasant surprises, but that central, you know, that central enigma of what on earth is going on in the in the labour market remains as intractable as ever. John, does the market care about the speakership chaos? Generally speaking, I think it's over. There's a cliche that markets actually like gridlock. Mm. Um, because it tends to mean that stupid. But this is things real gridlock. Really I mean, this is not even people can't even get sworn in gridlock. Yes. I, I, I am somewhat concerned that the market isn't reacting somewhat more negatively to mm. this. Um, and the the single biggest reason for this is I have a yeah I have a horrible feeling I'm going to have to write a lot about the debt ceiling mm. 
over the the next 12 months. So do I. And one of the big arguments, so the debt ceiling imply if you if if Congress refuses to raise the debt ceiling, then it's conceptually possible to refuse to to give the government the money it needs to pay off debts it's already incurred and mm. already promised to repay. So Congress can theoretically force Uncle Sam to default, which would be at least as bad as what happened in 2008, probably worse. Um, the reason people have played brinkmanship with this in the past, in the Tea Party era, but not gone all the way, is because you would need to be stupid to do this. Just yeah. absolutely the, plenty of good arguments in favour of um, being fiscally more conservative, reigning in the deficit. Doing it that way is literally indefensible, just madness. Remember the scare when S&P, I think it was, downgraded the United yes. States? Mm. That, that that was a very major market turning point. Yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, that, that was terrifying. That was the last really major tremor of the, uh, of the, of the whole Lehman crisis. Yeah. And um, it looks to me that if there are really 20 people on the Republican Party who are mad enough to do this, and who don't seem to be actually having any kind of a sensible debate. They're just saying no. Yeah. All of these people are people who are you know, philosophically against raising the debt ceiling. So, yes, the, 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 the risks are horrible. I mean, the Democrats are going to vote to raise it. So you don't need too many Republicans at all to vote for it to come in. The, the issue is that you'll have a speaker who's so weak that he can't even bring it to, to a vote. To a vote, yeah. I myself think that the risk of a US default is still tiny. Um, I also think, however, that it's risen in the last two days yes. because it really does look like they might be stupid enough to do this. Um, uh it bothers me that that's not clearer uh, in the markets. And we do have to watch for tail risks, right? I mean, yes. base case scenarios or just that, they're just base case scenarios. Yes. It's the tail risks the market should be worried about. No, the, this is... No, oh, I mean, a, a voluntary US default is as classic a black swan as you can imagine. There's there's no precedent for it because people always know if, if they're a money-printing authority, they can always pay their debts if they want to. It would be a totally voluntary thing that they did this. Um... It's an extremely unlikely, extremely extreme, too many extremes there, but extremely extreme event. It probably calls for it. And that's a classic black swan. That's exactly what markets find it very difficult to price. Um, obviously, at evens odds, I would still bet that it doesn't happen. Somehow or other, uh, sense will prevail. Um, but... It might. I'm, I'm surprised that there isn't a little more work trying to, um, Game trying up. to try, it's just trying to deal with that tail risk, mm -hmm. and also um, trying to sort of prompt Republican refuseniks that you know the good market capitalists in Wall Street do not want you to do this. Yeah, you know, the the people with four hundred one k's really don't want you to do this. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem to matter though to you know a faction of Republicans. It's it's difficult to be polite about them. Yeah. Uh, you, you try to be politically um, as neutral as you can be, and a lot of their philosophical points are things that I can find quite 
sympathetic. Their way of going about their job is just beyond beyond any defence. It's not it's not a good faith way to to go about being a, an elected representative. Jonathan Bernstein would make the point that they don't actually want anything; they just want chaos, and yes. that, that's the problem. It's, it's it's a reality TV type approach. It's not even like the the Tea Party a decade ago really were fanatical about the deficit in a way that was perhaps you know extreme but that you knew what they wanted and they were trying to to get that and they did indeed succeed in getting Barack Obama to be much less fiscally generous than he wanted they to had be. an ideology yes, yes they, they they had an ideology they had some policies they wanted to do and they had some success in executing those policies um this you know obviously has similarities to the to the Tea Party a decade ago, in terms of uh, in terms of the people who are involved, some of their motivations, but it's uh, it's much more diffuse, it's much less coherent, uh, and it's much more destructive. I think. John, a quick word about China. Maybe mm. we'll end things on a positive note by talking about China because we are yeah. seeing a rally. We've seen COVID rip through the economy and it does seem like, I mean, we don't know what's happening over there. We don't know how many people are dying, but it does yes. seem like we'll see at least some kind of herd immunity or the end of at least huge outbreaks at some point soon before the, the Lunar New Year. New Year. I think the issue is the, the Lunar New Year. Chinese people really like going home for the Lunar New Year. Yeah. Um, the last thing uh, epidemiologists would like Chinese people to do is embark on large trips in public transport yes. in the next few weeks, which is what they want to do. Mm. Uh, so I do think the timing of going away from zero COVID and you know so close to the big New Year holiday is potentially dangerous. I'm talking about, you know, I am not an epidemiologist. Sure. So many of us have ended up talking about epidemiologists like we know what we're talking about yeah um well we have seen waves of covid yes. we know how it goes is yes. it possible that maybe by lunar new year which is another three weeks away that the damage will have been done that everybody will have had it that would be wonderful i find it from my recollection of previous waves of covid that's possible but unlikely yeah but um i i, I think it's one where you where one has to maintain a certain deference I mean, this is the kind of thing we've all felt since the pandemic came into our lives, right? Yeah. Do you, uh, you have to remain uh, retain a certain degree of humility about your own human physical fragility and about your knowledge that this is something you need to know about and understand, but that you don't know yeah, much about. Exactly. Um, it's a very good reminder, actually. Yes. I, 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 the risk, the likelihood, it seems to me, is that you could get... Um, a situation where the economy gets worse before it gets better because uh, you do get a really nasty wave, like say the Omicron wave uh, at the you know at the turn of last year, mm. um, which didn't kill that many people but really snarled up the economy because absolutely everybody had COVID. Exactly, people weren't at work, people it, couldn't go to work. Exactly, and 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 so with that, it doesn't matter with what the government policy is; it slows down the economy if everybody is sick at the same time, even if they're at work. And apparently, the government <coughs> yeah. policy, as Shuli Ren says, the government policy is go back to work even if you continue to test positive as long as your fever is gone, which, which is, is kind of terrifying. <laughs> Again, not that I'm an epidemiologist, but that's from what I think I've learned over the last three years. That doesn't sound like a great idea to me. So there is this risk that you could get whipsawing when the Chinese market, China, well, economy slows down much more because 
you know, it seems reasonable that you would get something on the same scale of the Omicron wave of, of a year ago. Uh, and that would mean in the country the size of China, that means hundreds of millions of people being sick with COVID at once. Um, I can imagine a false further fall mm. for the economy, followed by a rebound, which gives people... You basically need to understand the dynamics of an epidemic to call it financially correctly. It's possible, because some of the numbers don't suggest that COVID isn't really taking off as much as people feared, that the market rally is right, that they've just said on balance probability, the scenario I've just mentioned probably isn't going to happen by. And that's not a stupid thing to do. But it's really possible that that will turn out to be wrong and lose a lot of money. There'll be a lot of losses. That's another tail risk. Yes. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. Stay tuned. Next, we talk Twitter's future with Tim Culpin in Taiwan. This is Bloomberg Opinion. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vonnie Quinn. Since Elon Musk took over Twitter on October 27th of last year, the company has seen its headcount fall by 50% plus. It suffered what Musk himself has called a massive drop in revenue from brands pausing ad spending. Band accounts have been reinstated. Other accounts have been frozen or suspended. It's just been one thing after another. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Tim Culpin about whether Twitter alternatives really exist and whether we'll ever see an en masse exodus. Tim, Twitter wasn't ever an agnostic platform, even before Musk's purchase, that's for sure. But it's getting harder and harder to see it as a non-partisan platform, given the mercurial nature of the CEO. Some people have migrated. Will we see a mass exodus, though? A lot of people keep saying that they have left Twitter or will be leaving Twitter. And they're going to places like Post and Mastodon and even Coup and a few other places. And people are also ramping up their Substacks. But yet those same people who say they're leaving Twitter are still staying on Twitter. Mm. They're a little bit addicted to the site. So this mass exodus that people have talked about isn't happening yet. But I think the usership and the stickiness of the site is dropping. So people are posting a bit less and I think people are using it, logging on or opening the app a bit less. Now, you suggest in a column that Twitter had already become this generation's MySpace even before Musk took over. I'm curious, though, MySpace was only around for maybe three years. Twitter has been around since 2006. How are you comparing the two? The thing that really happened with MySpace was that when it was bought by News Corp, only a few years after founding, it was already looking like it was peaking. It didn't peak until a couple of years later. Facebook then took over. But there's a lot of things that were going on at MySpace, both on the front end in terms of the user experience as well as the way it was being scaled. And then News Corp tried very hard to monetize it and were pushing ads very heavily, which Mm. really upset the whole user experience. And so it took a while for MySpace to descend from there. We're seeing some early signs of that happening with what Musk is trying to do at Twitter. We shouldn't write him off. It's not like he's committed to any specific approach. There's been changes made, but none of them seem to be permanent. None of them seem to be sticking. He's basically experimenting and playing around. But really, the the similarity with MySpace, I think, is the fact that the world is moving on. 
Twitter maybe has had its day. We'll see. And it won't be immediate. It won't be a sudden drop-off of Twitter. It'll probably still climb. But at some time in the next few years, I think we'll find a peak. Right. And there are a lot of sites, as you say, and a lot of strategies that people are trying out, but none of them really seem to be taking off immediately, at least. And there's obviously TikTok, Instagram and all the other social media sites that have many, many, many more users. But Musk does stand to lose a lot of money here. And the more users he loses in particular, the more money he stands to lose. Why is he jeopardising that? I don't think it's deliberate. I think Elon Musk, you know, he's paid for it, not all of it from his own pocket, but there's also a lot of debt burden that he has to service as a result of this. He's not deliberately burning it down or bringing it to the ground. He's, he's rebuilding it or refashioning it. He's tried to make a push to get advertisers back. But the toxicity of the platform, I think, is what could really bring it down. What do media companies do? I mean, full disclosure, I opened a Mastodon account, but I haven't actually used it. I guess the core Twitter users are, yes, journalists like ourselves, also a lot of people in their tech VC area. And then there's people in politics, whether they're actual politicians, lobbyists, you know, so forth. And and there's also a lot of corporate accounts there. Part of the reason why there's no immediate Twitter downfall is people haven't really chosen what the next big thing is. There's problems with Mastodon. It's not that easy to use. People are kind of moving to post, but it's, it's very... I mean, it's not actually in beta, it's really launched, but it feels like a beta product right now. Mm. Who knows, in a few months, all of these sites might have a better idea of how to run. But I don't think that we will see Apple kicking off Twitter because both Apple and Google are facing another issue, which is the belief that they may be monopoly powers. And if we see someone like Apple or Google kicking Twitter off their app stores, then that would really hone the point that these are very powerful organizations. And, and of course, Elon Musk wouldn't go down without a fight. And he's got a lot of well-heeled and very noisy friends around him. So I don't imagine Twitter would kick off those platforms, but it's probably the kind of fight that he would mind trying out anyway. Bloomberg Opinion's Tim Culpin in Taipei. That does it for this week's opinion. As always, though, please do send your thoughts and opinions our way. You can email me at vquinn at bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.